Good morning. Good to be with all of you. Welcome those of you joining online in, in Saratoga Half Moon here in Latham. So I'm going to be kicking off a two-part series, and I, what I think is one of the most empowering, hope-filled aspects of the Christian faith, and that is God's amazing grace. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about how we are rescued by grace, and the next week, I want to bring a message as to how we are to be transformed, changed by the grace of God. I'm excited about these next two weeks. Hey, do you remember back in 2010, it made international news when 33 miners from Chile faced tragedy, when the mine they were working all of a sudden collapsed. And get this, it trapped them 2,000 feet below the surface. And I'm thinking when that tragedy struck, not one of those miners requested a shovel or a sharper pick or better headlamps or an excavation map or any tool for that matter because they realized how desperate their situation was. But I'm thinking every single one of them was excited about the hope and the thought of someone coming from the outside to rescue them. And who could blame them? Trapped 2,000 feet below the surface for two months. The reports tell us that they were able to survive many days on a spoonful of tuna, a small portion of peaches, a few sips of milk, and on a positive attitude because they encouraged one another when they were down there. They exercised together, and they dug out of the stone. They carved out a natural water deposit, so they had water to sustain life. And they would often hang out in this particular section of the cave where they said, if anybody's rescuing us, it's right here. Meanwhile, 2,000 feet above the surface, rescue crews were devising a rescue plan. They consulted with Nassau. They called in the experts. The Chilean government was determined to rescue these miners. They built a 13-foot-tall rescue capsule. They drilled two holes 2,000 feet deep, one for communication, the other for excavation. But there was no guarantee that this was going to be a success because up until this point, no one has ever been down so deep for so long to live and tell about it. Until October 13th, 2010, when a miracle happened, and every one of those miners emerged from that mine alive. And when they did, it, let me tell you, a lot of people were there to welcome them. As you could imagine, family, friends, government officials, media outlet from all over the world there to rescue this, uh, witness this incredible rescue. The first man out of that rescue ca capsule was a man by the name of Florenzio Avalo. It was a very moving moment because his little boy was there. And he didn't think he'd ever see his dad again. And when Florenzio came out of that rescue capsule, you could see the emotion on his little boy. And he ran through the crowds. He jumped in his father's arm, arms and they just, the crowds just bursted in celebration. It was, it was incredible to witness after him was a man by the name of Mario Spavado. He is the one that bursted out of that rescue capsule and began to high-five everyone in sight as everyone just cheered and went crazy. One by one, the men emerged from that collapsed mine. The 24th person out of the mine was a man by the name of Jose Enrique, and he was the one that requested 33 Bibles be lowered down into that cave because he was determined to hold a daily Bible study. 
And you know what I think? I think attendance was pretty good. Because when you are down 2,000 feet below the surface, you need all the help you can get. And you know what? Not one of those miners rejected the help. Not one of them said, hey, man, just give me two more days. I'll get myself out of here. No, of course not. They all accepted the help. Why? Because they knew how desperate they were for help. So as I kick off a two-part series on grace, I want us to think about this question. Do you realize, do I realize how desperate we are for God's help? Not to be rescued from a collapsed mind, of course, but to be rescued from our fallen, sinful nature. Now, I know there's some of you thinking, do you really have to kick off a sermon series on grace talking about sin? And I think I, think I do. Because sometimes, and you know this, Sometimes we need to be reminded of the bad news in order to really, really appreciate the good news. So will you, will you give me some grace here? I'm not going to camp out long, but I'm going to start with the bad news. Romans 3.23, the apostle Paul says, you're familiar with this verse. We're all sinners. We fall short of God's glorious standards, which is perfection because we're sinners. You know, sin is nothing more than our natural tendency to run away from God and run towards our self-centered ways. The apostle Paul would say of himself in Romans 7 that at times he would do the things he knew we should not do, and he wouldn't do the things he knew we should do, and he would say, what a wretched man I am. He would cry out, who will rescue me from this fallen, sinful nature? And of course, he points to Jesus Christ as the hope of the world. Here's the problem. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. You ask why? Because God's perfect and we are not. I like how James, in James chapter 2, verse 10, puts it, makes it real simple. He says these words, look at it with me. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So imagine from the date of your birth to the date of your uh, death, you do one thing wrong, you tell a lie. He's saying you're guilty of breaking it all. Why? Because God is perfect. That's why the prophet Isaiah would say, all your good works and all my good works, context, in trying to earn God's favor, it's like filthy rags. When measuring against God's perfect standard. It would be like those 33 miners putting hope in a shovel and in their own efforts to dig themselves out of their mess. No, hope comes from above. And that is the good news of the gospel. That despite our sin nature, God pours out grace. As the apostle Paul put it, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you. He died for me. He died for the sins of the world, past, present, future. Never think grace is cheap. It costs Jesus everything. And when we put our faith and trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, 
on that cross, then his righteousness is given to you. It is given to me. It is imputed to us. You say, what does that mean? Now, this should blow you away. It means when God looks at you, when he looks at me, he does not see us for who we are, sinners, but rather he sees Jesus. His righteousness given to you, given to me, and it is the only way by which we have right standing with God and friends, that's called grace. The unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2.8, calls it a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. But it's freely given to those who humbly admit I got a sin problem, and I need your help, God. Grace. Now, here's a question I want us to be thinking about this week as well as next. Has God's grace captured your heart? For so many of us, I think grace is just a word. It's just a definition. And it doesn't come to life until you experience it in your life or until you see how it impacts the life of someone who receives it because that's when the emotion of grace comes alive. That's when the beauty of grace is seen. That's when the shock of grace is felt. And it's likely why Jesus would often tell stories about his grace because that's how it would come alive. And so here's what I want to do as we kick off this two-part series for the balance of our time. I want to pull out some gospel stories where Jesus is either interacting with somebody and he's giving them grace, or he's telling us a parable, a story that brings his grace to life. And I'm going to start with a parable out of Luke 18. Now, listen, all of these stories are going to be familiar to many of you, and that is by intention, because sometimes we forget about the beauty and the magnitude of grace. Luke 18, parable, it's about two men, and they are complete opposites in this culture. And you have on one hand, a highly regarded, highly respected man in this culture for the good things they do outwardly. They are a Pharisee. On the other hand, you have somebody who is looked down at in this culture, the worst of all sinners, a traitor, tax collector. Think of him as the bad guy in this culture. Think of the religious leader as the good guy in this culture. The two go into the temple to pray. And Jesus starts with the Pharisee saying, when he prayed, knowing how good he is, he began to thank God that he's not like other people. I'm not a sinner. I'm not like the tax collector. I'm not like the adulterer, the robber, the evildoer. You get the point. And then he shifts and begins to tell God how good he is. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of my money to the poor. And on and on he went. And then Jesus shifts to the tax collector. And he said he wouldn't even come to the front of the temple. He stood at a distance. He looked down. He beat his breast. He cried out softly, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, what Jesus does next is absolutely shocking to those he is telling the parable to. You say, who is he telling it to? Verse 9, 
to those who were confident of their own righteousness. In other words, I can earn God's favor in the good that I do, just like the religious leaders. And so when Jesus says what he says in verse 14, look at it, look at it with me, it was utterly shocking to them. He says, this man, tax collector, not the other Pharisee, went home justified, accepted, and right standing before God. And that was shocking. Because at the core, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the bad guy, quote unquote, is better than the good guy, quote unquote, in God's economy. You say, why? Because the bad guy knew he was bad. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed God's mercy. Good guy didn't think he had a problem. And when the tax collector cried out, have mercy on me, a sinner, mercy was given. He went home justified before God. And that's just a brief picture of grace, the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God to those who humbly admit, I got a problem. I need help. Second story is out of the gospel of John. And this is about a woman who gets caught in the act of adultery. This is a big problem in the first century, as you will soon find out. Do you remember who catches her? The religious leaders catch her. And I like how Max Lucado, prolific Christian author, imagines how this scene unfolds in his book, Grace, More Than We Deserve, Greater Than We Imagine. It's a great book. And and I quote him here. He says this. I could imagine the religious leaders, as they barge into the room where this woman is. They slam open the bedroom door, throw back the window curtains, and pull off the covers, and they shout, shame on you, pathetic, disgusting. They catch her in the act. She barely had time to cover her body as they're dragging her through the streets, and as they are, neighbors are no doubt glaring at her with judgmental eyes and crossed arms, end quote. Now, where are they dragging her to? They're dragging her to the temple where Jesus is teaching. And when they finally get there, they throw this shameful woman onto the floor in front of Jesus and the crowds. They interrupt Jesus' teaching. And then they say this, verse 4, to Jesus. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery, The law of Moses says to Stoner, I am thinking they have big stones in their hands ready to kill her. Then they ask Jesus, what do you say we do? They are testing Jesus. You're not going to go against the law, are you, Jesus? But the accusations have been leveled. Put yourself in the shoes of this woman. She has zero exit strategy. What is she going to do? Deny the accusation she was caught in the act. What is she going to do? Plead for mercy? From whom? From God? In her eyes. Understand this. God's representatives are the ones about to stone her to death. Who's she going to turn to? Who's going to defend her? And I know many of you know Jesus defends her. Verse 7 All right, now that's got to be scary to her because he's like, go ahead and stone her. I'm thinking she's covering her head. 
She doesn't know how this is going to end. And then Jesus continues, but let the one who has never sinned. What's God's standard? Perfection. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And you have to understand what Jesus does there is absolutely amazing because he levels the playing field. And he's saying to those religious leaders who think they're just so good, he's saying, you're no different than this woman who's clearly done wrong when measuring against my perfect standard. In other words, you're a sinner and she's a sinner and you both need grace. The woman got it because of her desperate situation. The religious leaders, they thought they were so good, they didn't need it. But what's interesting is that Jesus' words of truth spoke right to their hearts. And those Pharisees, they couldn't deny the truth. They knew they were not perfect. And I'm imagining as that woman is covering her head, not knowing how this is going to play out, I imagine her hearing the rocks fall to the ground. Thump, 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 thump. As the religious leaders leave her alone. It is Jesus this woman, and the crowds he was teaching, listen, they were riveted to this scene. And then Jesus asks these questions, verse 10, to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, no, Lord. And then Jesus says, neither do I, grace, go and sin no more, truth. In the opening chapter of the book of John, the gospel where you find this story, the apostle John describes Jesus as the one who was full of both grace and truth. Understand God does not condone sin, hates sin, and don't mix grace up with God condoning sin. He does not, but I think the order here is very important. Not only in the manner in which John describes Jesus as full of grace and truth, but the manner in which Jesus responds to this woman, neither do I condemn you, grace, go and sin no more, truth. What comes first? Grace. Because grace establishes the relationship between a fallen, sinful people and a good, loving, just, powerful God by grace through faith, we've been saved, reconciled. And once we're in relationship with him, he will empower us to live out his truth, and it's the truth that sets us free. Jeremiah the prophet, remember, said his commands are never meant to harm you, but to help you. Go, sin, no more. But make no mistake about it. When Jesus defended this woman in the first century, the people that saw it were shocked. What is he doing? Defending her. It's certainly what the religious leaders thought, but Jesus gave hope to a woman who within moments thought she was going to be killed. And that is grace. The unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Third story, familiar story. 
It's when Jesus gave grace to the criminal hanging on the cross. As he's being crucified, you got a criminal on the right, criminal on the left, they're being crucified. Now picture the way this scene unfolds, the way the gospel writers tell us. The crowds began to come and witness this crucifixion. And many in the crowds, do you remember what they were doing? They were mocking Jesus. They were making fun of him. Hey, you're the savior. You're the Messiah. You saved other people. Save yourself. And they were referring to the miracles that he performed when he walked among the people. They knew and seen and heard all about the miracles that Jesus performed when he raised Lazarus from the dead when he raised Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader, his daughter from the dead. Save yourself if you're the Messiah. But it wasn't just the crowds. Both criminals were mocking him as well. Hey, if you're the Messiah, would you get yourself off the cross so you can get us off the cross? But then one of the criminals had a change of heart, and he began to realize there's something wrong with this whole picture. Everyone is mocking Jesus. Because you see, he saw the meekness by which Jesus allowed himself to be punished. He heard Jesus praying for his executioners. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He knew about himself. He deserved what he was getting. But Jesus did nothing wrong. He's without sin. He feared God's judgment, and he had a change of heart. Within a moment, he went from disbelief to belief. And he realized this is the Messiah. Okay, picture the scene. Everyone is making fun of Jesus, and then there is a sole voice of sanity that speaks into the insanity. And it's coming from, of all people, the criminal. Luke 23, he says these words directed to the other criminal who's continuing to mock Jesus. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, you're the Messiah. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. He gives the criminal grace. And when the people heard it, they were shocked. This makes no sense. He was just mocking you. He's done some really bad things. And oh, by the way, he's going to be dead in a couple of minutes. What good is he going to do for you? Makes no sense, and they're right. Because grace doesn't make sense. Because it is the undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God to those who humbly admit, I've got a problem, and I need help. Final story. And it's found in Luke 15. And it's a parable that Jesus gives here. Now, it's important to note in the first two verses of the chapter, you will realize that Jesus is speaking to two groups of people. Anytime you read a parable, you want to know who is he speaking to. On one hand, sinners and tax collectors that know they need grace. 
On the other hand, the self-righteous ones who think they don't, who do you think is representing them? The Pharisees. You see the theme. And then Jesus gives three back-to-back parables. It's the only time he gives three back-to-back parables that are communicating the same biblical truth. This is Jesus saying, this is so important. I'm not going to tell it to you once. I'm not going to tell it to you twice. I'm going to tell it to you three times. It's known as the lost and found parables of the gospel. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. And I'm only going to talk about the third one known as the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Many of you know the story. Now, understand the Father is God in this parable. We're being represented by the younger of the two sons, the wayward one. This younger son goes to the dad. Hey, dad, can I have my inheritance early? It's pretty disrespectful because it's like him saying, dad, I wish you were dead so I could get my money. But Jesus surprises us. And he says the dad gave him the money. It's not what you think. Dad gave him the money. He takes the money, and he goes to a far-off land, and he parties. Women, wine, song, the whole nine yards. He's having the time of his life until, of course, the money runs out, and his supposed friends abandon him. He's all alone. He's broke. Then Jesus adds attention. A famine runs over the land. Now he's destitute. He is starved. He is scared. He's all alone. Out of his desperation, he goes to a local pig farmer and begs for a job feeding pigs. Another tension, because Jewish people didn't hang out with pigs. They're unclean. But he's so desperate, he begs for a job. He gets the job. He's covered in mud. He's feeding the pigs. He's so hungry, he wants the food. He's feeding the pigs. And then he begins to long for being back with his dad. And then he said, if I could only go back, And just be one of his servants. I'd have it so much better if I could only go back. Have you ever said those words? If I could only go back and do it differently? If I could only go back and undo that decision? If I could only go back and undo the hurt? If I could only go back and change the path that has led to so many regrets and missed opportunities, if I could only go back. You and I know we can't just go back and undo what we've done. The prodigal could not go back and make the money reappear, but he could do one thing. He could go back and reestablish the relationship he had with his father. And now listen, there are some of you that really need to hear what I'm about to say. Whether you're listening online, whether you're at Saratoga Half Moon here in Latham. Because I know there are some that think this way. God does not want to hear from me. Because of my past, you know the bad things I did. He doesn't want to hear from me, and I need you to hear me. That is a lie from the devil. God always wants to hear from us. Draw near to him. He draws near to us, James 4, 8. Do not think 
that way. Rather, do what the prodigal does. You see, he don't repeat over and over and over in his mind the stupid things he did. And he doesn't dig in his heels and say, I'm not going back now. I'll be embarrassed. They'll ridicule me. They won't accept me. No. Humbles himself. Journeys back. Now, apparently the way Jesus gives the story, the dad was looking for his son to come back like every day. Because when the son came back, the father was already looking for him as if, I know he's coming one day. And so picture the dad, like maybe on the front porch, looking over the horizon. And when he's looking, he, he finally sees his son coming. You remember what Jesus said about how the father responded? He ran to his son. He embraced him. He kissed him. And it's a picture of how badly God wants to hear from us. And it's certainly not what you would have thought. The father would have responded in this honor culture that Jesus is speaking to. The father, no, would have responded this way. How dare you come back? You wasted all our money. You dragged the family name through the mud. But he embraces him, he hugs him. And then the son, verse 21, says this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son if you would just make me one of your servants. And what you see the son do here is a picture of what the apostle Paul describes as godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he speaks of worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Here's worldly sorrow. I feel bad because I'm hurting. I feel bad because I'm embarrassed. I feel bad because no one's going to respect me because of the stupid things I did. And it's all centered on me. And that never leads to change, you know. It never leads to repentance. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is this. I feel bad because I hurt you. I have sinned against heaven, God, and you, Dad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son if you would just make me one of your servants. Now, if you think what the father did up to this point is shocking, and you know the story, many of you, what he does next, really shocking. He doesn't even listen to his son. Of course, you're my son. And then he throws him a big old welcome home party. Verse 22, the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Royalty. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. That is a signet ring. He is able to transact business in the name of his dad. He is reinstating him as his son. Bring the fatted calf and kill it because we're about to have a big old party. Why? Because my son was lost and he's now found. And it's worthy of a celebration. And that is a picture of grace. The unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. It is utterly amazing. It is completely shocking. And it is absolutely unfair. And that's why grace is really 
really unsettling for a lot of people. In fact, in every one of the stories, there is someone negatively surprised by grace. The self-righteous ones were shocked when Jesus said the tax collector went home justified, not the religious leader. The religious leaders were shocked when Jesus leveled the playing field and said, you're no different than this adulterous woman who's done wrong. When measuring against my perfect standard, you need grace, she needs grace, they were insulted. And when Jesus gave grace to a criminal hanging on the cross, the crowds no doubt thought, this makes no sense. He was just mocking you, Jesus. He's done some terrible things. This makes no sense in the right. And you see it in this story as well. Because the older brother is being introduced into the story. Jesus being the master storyteller brings him in for a reason. Remember, I said he's speaking to two groups of people. Sinners, tax collectors, they're represented by the wayward son, the prodigal. The self-righteous are being represented by the older brother. Now, older brother comes out, hears all this commotion, and the servants are coming out to tell him what's going on and to invite him to the party. And the servants are like, hey, your brother's back. Your dad's throwing him a big party. You think he's happy? He's not happy. He said, whoa, whoa, time out. Wait, wait, wait. My brother, who squandered all that money, dragged the family name through the mud, is back, and dad's throwing him a party. Nobody throws me a party. I'm not going. He's angry. So the dad hears, oh, you know, my Older son's not coming, so he goes out and tries to plead with him. Come on, son. Your brother, my son, he's back. He was lost. He's found it's worthy of a celebration. Come on. Older brother wouldn't have it. Verse 29, this is how he responds. Look, very angry. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? This makes no sense. And he's right. It makes absolutely no sense. But here's where the older brother goes wrong. You see it in his response. Two problems. Problem number one, as you can see, he has a heart that has been hardened by his own righteousness. I'm good. He's bad. I deserve reward. He deserves nothing. No, he deserves punishment. And that's what happens when you think you can earn God's favor by the good that you do. You can begin to be real proud and real arrogant. Problem number two, in the older brother's response, you can see he does not serve his dad out of a heart of love or compassion, but rather he serves his dad out of obligation and duty. I have been slaving for you, and there is no joy in that, and God don't like that at all. He's wrong there, but he's right. It's not fair. And as I close, and we're going to pick it up again next week, 
There is only two ways by which you respond to God's amazing grace. Response number one, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, that it is not fair because I don't deserve it. Sinner who falls so short, thank you for grace that gives me everlasting hope. Response number one. Or, number two, grace? Come on. I'm a good guy. I don't, I don't need grace. I'm doing good just on my own. Thank you very much. And, and by the way, stop talking about giving that person grace. I'm good. But they... Not so much. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said there's only two types of people in this world, not the guilty and the innocent, but the guilty who know they're sinners and need help, and the guilty who don't think they are. But make no mistake about it. We're all guilty. We all fall short of his glorious standard, which is a standard of perfection. And in light of his perfect standard, we are the tax collector. We are the adulterer. We are the criminal. We're the wayward son. We're just like those 33 miners trapped 2,000 feet below the surface looking for help to come from above. And thank God Almighty, help came from above in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And I close with this quote from Philip Yancey. He said this, we can never sink so far that God's grace will not reach us. At the same time, grace does not leave us there. It raises us to new heights. And that's what I want to talk about next week as we continue in our series on God's amazing grace. And we're going to talk about how his grace changes us, transforms us for our good in his glory. Hope you're there. I can't wait to see you. Thank you. Father God, we are just so honored by the good news of the gospel. Oh, my Lord, Father, it is so good that sometimes uh, we can forget about how good it is. And my hope and prayer is that everyone who hears my voice is so blown away by the goodness of you, Father God. And nothing speaks to your goodness like the grace we have in and through the cross of Jesus. It is hope everlasting, and the whole intent of your goodness is to draw us closer to you so that you can make us the men and women you have designed us to be, to give glory to you for our good and for your glory. We are so thankful for all that you do and all that you will continue to do through a faithful body of believers. And we pray everything in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. Amen. Amen.